the volume. Oral Sessions is brought to you by FanDuel. It's never been easier to play fantasy on FanDuel. Whether you love basketball, golf, soccer, or any other fantasy sport, there's a contest for every fan. FanDuel, more ways to win. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Oral Sessions. Joining me on the show today, this man has been the best to do it. He has been regarded as the best MMA journalist over the past decade plus. Ariel Holwani is joining me on the show. We go back from our days up in Canada. I met him many, many moons ago, my days back in the score, when he was getting his feet wet in the MMA broadcasting world as well. We talk about, yeah, just his journey, how he got to where he is, him being a huge wrestling fan, his love of Bret Hart, being there at the Montreal Screwjob at the Bell Center Survivor Series 1997. What an epic moment to be in attendance for. Incredible. And um, we just talk about his, his career's relationship with Dana White, what his future's looking like. Um, it's been made public that his contract with ESPN is winding down beginning of June. What's he going to be doing? What's going to happen? We get into all of that, all the nitty gritty. He's so transparent, so honest, talking about the relationships that he has with different fighters. Um, just what makes him such a great pro at what he does. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, just so much fun. And he's so smart and so sharp and has such a great point of view on all things broadcasting and uh, and maintaining those important relationships. Um, but all right, guys, let's just get into it. Here he is. Here's Ariel Hawani. In this regard, it was a little bit weird because it's like, here I am trying to look intellectual. And in, in the end, it's a, I mean, I don't live in a library. Clearly, this is a library. Who would think this is real? But apparently people thought it was real. I got excited because I was like, that's a lot of books. And the way that they're arranged in the back looks like it could be in someone's house. Like It's not like they're all like color coded and like it looks like it could be in someone's house. The beauty of this picture and why I chose it is because they gave me a TV and I put it. But I like I like you see the shadowing. It kind of looks imperfect. The color works with my skin color. There's something about it that makes it feel real. And so I was like, this is perfect. I feel like I've been like welcomed into your home and like at like a Wes Anderson film or something like that. That's what I went for. Thank you. <laughs> That's what I went for. I love it. I should have known better. I feel like from doing all these Zooms, you, you should be able to tell, but I've been duped. I've been had. I like it. I believe I just broke kayfabe, as they say in your business, Renee. I mean, oh my God, we've got so much to get into. I didn't do a proper intro, but guys, welcome to Oral Sessions. Ariel Hawani's joining me today with his fake backdrop. He has not read all of oh, those Oh, that books. was part? I thought that was uh, off the record. <laughs> I didn't realize that I just outed myself. I thought this was the pre-interview. Okay. I feel like you already outed yourself if you were on. I did. Yeah, you've already done it. You've been there and done that. So where are you? Are you in Brooklyn? Is that where you still live? Uh, no, I live outside of Brooklyn now. Parts unknown. Oh, Okay. There's a lot of people, Renee, that don't like me. And so I'm always afraid to tell them where I live. <laughs> so we're going to go with Parts Unknown, if that's okay with you. Okay, so before you lived in Parts Unknown, were you getting like stuff like mail sent to you and like hate mail and stuff? No, but I'm a very neurotic Jewish person who feels like the world is out to get him. And there are some scary people who don't like me in this world. So uh, I would always be afraid of letting people know where I live. And honestly, there's no reason for this. I don't think anyone's showing up to my apartment or house. But again, the neuroses in me has said you know, maybe a little uh, too much information isn't a good thing. So I'm going to keep some things to myself. Yeah, no, I think that's very smart. Because, you know, when uh, when John and I bought our house, we didn't buy it under our names because we do get stuff sent to the house, especially John. I mean, he gets letters from jail. I mean, most of it's honestly just like, hey, can you sign this and send it back to me? Like, it's usually pretty harmless. Um, but most of the time, I mean, we we don't open it because it's a weird thing to get sent to your house. Wow. So how do you decide what to open and what not to open? Um, I judge it off of the writing, off of the front, or if you can feel there's something in there. But either way, I mean, you, you, we never respond to it. So there's no point in opening it at all. Uh, but we did get a hand-knit blanket for our baby. And are you going to keep it or is that awkward? It's a little awkward. 
Why? What if it's like it was beautiful? Like they put a lot of time and effort into it. It was a beautiful blanket, but like it just feels a little weird to keep something like that. No, is your heart made of coal? What's wrong with you? Are you the Grinch? <laughs> Wait, why won't you use? You this? can't throw this back at me. You're not telling anyone where you live. You're keeping your life on well, lockdown. If you got something sent for your kid, you'd probably be extra like hypersensitive about it. That is fair. I will say some crafty individuals have somehow found my address, even though. When we bought our house, I did do the same thing as you. I didn't put it under my name because of my neuroses. And uh, I've gotten, you know, like a picture that we took at some event in the mail with, you know, self-addressed posted, blah, blah, blah. And I've, all right, if you're going to go through this trouble of finding out where I live, I'll, I'll sign it and send it back to you. Now it's happened maybe five times. And each time I've taken a picture and sent it to my mom and been like, can you believe this? Who the hell wants my signature? But uh yeah, I, I, no one has sent anything to my kids, so I can't judge. I will be honest. That's good. That's a good place to be. Um, but yeah, you are a man with a target on your back. And uh, we will certainly be getting into that because I find it all fascinating. I feel like you you are like the ultimate heat seeker. You are like <laughs> in, in the in the wrestling world. As I was like reading up on all this stuff, just like you being banned from events and being kicked out of events and all that to Issue, you've had issues with Booker T, haven't you? Well, listen, uh, <laughs> you know, Booker. My dude, Booker. Well, you know, listen, um, as you know, in, in the wrestling business, the wrestling business, you know, there are jobbers and then there are, you know, A-listers. In this regard, this would be like Maple Leaf Wrestling circa 1992, if that means anything. I would be, you know, I, I would be the A-lister. He would be the opening act who doesn't get an entrance and they just say his name and he waves and I would finish him one, two, three in a matter of minutes. So I'm trying to make wow. Booker relevant in 2021. He's got a podcast that is listened to by, I think, 15 people. So I feel bad for the guy, <laughs> um, but, you know, I can only do so much. So it's nice that he's been featured on some like indie music video. That was cool. I'm sure he paid a lot of money on some GoFundMe <laughs> for that. Oh my God. Don't tell me you're not on the Bad Bunny bandwagon after wrestling. WrestleMania, come on. Respect to Bad Bunny. Respect. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm very, very impressed. Very, very impressed. And actually, uh, we don't have to get into this too much. I'm watching more wrestling now, like in the past eight months, than I've probably watched in 20 years. What are you watching? What are you into? Well, it's because I have two boys um, who are age nine and seven. And for some reason, seven or so months ago, I don't know what happened. Maybe it was just like my subliminal messaging and wanting them to kind of experience what I experienced with wrestling as a kid. They have freaking exploded, like dove headfirst right into the world of wrestling. Like they cannot get enough playing the game all day um, on Nintendo switch, uh, wanting to watch Ron smack down the next day, or at least stay up a little bit. Full disclosure. This is very funny. I've told them, you know, there's another group. Cause I'm big into competition. Like when it comes to MMA, I'm not just a UFC. Like I, I always want to highlight the other organizations. So I'm like, there's this other group and they're called AEW and they're on Wednesdays and they are on a channel, which used to be rich and rest. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> They've already made up their yeah, mind. <laughs> they're, they're pure WWE marks. So I'm trying, but for now it's like, real, like they're terrified of the fiend, like absolutely like run out of the room, terrified big Roman Reigns fans, big Goldberg fans. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's so much fun watching this stuff with them. And we had a WrestleMania party. I am living vicariously through like, it's like, wow, I can't believe my kids, my spawn are actually starting to like the same things that I once liked. And, and my middle son in particular, super into it, got the toys, got the ring doing the play-by-play like I used to do as a kid. And I, I film him and send it to my parents and they're freaking out because they're like, you used to do this exact same thing as a seven, eight year old. So yeah, I'm watching a lot. I like it. It's fun. You know those hot takes you post on social media? Well, now you can win up to $5,000 when you put those takes to the test on FanDuel. It's a new game called Over Under, and it's absolutely free to play on FanDuel. So here's how it works. FanDuel will set lines on things like total points or three-pointers made during every NBA on TNT broadcast. All you have to do is pick over or under for every prop. Your picks could win you a share of $5,000 during every contest. FanDuel is the exclusive home for Over Under, and it's available in all 50 states. You can play from anywhere. All you have to do is go to FanDuel.com slash Over Under and sign up now if you've not done so already. Please just do it. You're going to love it. Just create a new FanDuel account. If you don't already have one, it takes less than two minutes to sign up. Then you put your takes to the test during every NBA on TNT broadcast at fanduel.com slash over under. They could be worth up to 5,000 bucks. Do it. 
Age and location restrictions apply. See FanDuel.com for terms and conditions. So they're into Roman Reigns, terrified of the Fiend. Are you taking them back to watch stuff that you grew up on as well? 1,000%. This is a Bret Hart household. So <laughs> he was my favorite. I've shown them uh, the Montreal Screwjob, which I was in attendance for. That's my big claim to fame. You were at the Montreal Screwjob? Yep. <gasps> November Oh 97. my God. How did that affect you as a human being? So this is interesting. I was a massive pro wrestling fan. Um, you know, I'm born in 82. So I remember WrestleMania one, like going to the video store and watching it with my brothers around 94, getting into high school, I started to get really into NBA basketball. And this was a bit of a weird time in WWF land, right? Like it was that transitional period. So I actually got out of it for two, three years. A friend of mine, we were at a driving lesson. So this is 97. He tells me, you know, there's a pay-per-view coming to Montreal. And that was the first ever pay-per-view in Montreal. It had never come before. So it felt like a big deal. I was like, and it's Survivor Series. We got to go. However, I had not watched for three, four years. So I was not up to speed with the storylines and everything. I wasn't even up to speed with the product. So I get there and there's 5 million signs. That wasn't a thing when I stopped watching in like 94. I see like Sable. I'm in ninth grade. I'm like, what the hell is going Like, it's like, Yowza. it's all sexified. It's mm -hmm. all different, right? It's totally different. And then he's like, this could be Brett's last match. He's like bringing me up to speed. Then what happens happens. He, he throws the, the, the monitors and all that. And then I remember going home, going on like scoopswrestling.com and those sites, reading up on all the drama and be like, holy crap. And that got me right back in. And then 97, 98, 99, 2000s. Then I was more of a fan than ever before Attitude Era. So in the moment, I was a little bit oblivious. But now in hindsight, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I was at one of the most historic matches of all time. Yeah. I mean, looking back at that match and then, you know, if you've obviously watched Bret Hart's whole documentary. I mean, being able to watch that and watch his side of how that Montreal screw job all went down. What's your take on it? Well, first of all, I watched that documentary probably like once a year, Wrestling with Shadows. <laughs> yes. So great. I mean, so amazing that they were able to capture all of that. I understand why he would be upset. There's a part of me that understands why Vince would be upset with him not wanting to drop the title when they wanted him to drop the title. There's, it's, it's a time-honored tradition in our business. You know, I love that. Brett screwed Brett. <laughs> tremendous. Um, that being said, they did have a deal. And correct me if I'm wrong, he tried to renege on the deal Vince did. And so I, I could, I can understand you will never hear me say a negative thing about Bret Hart. He was, when I was a little kid, I remember vividly going to the doctor to get like a flu shot or something. And I was afraid of it. You know, I was probably at that time, seven, eight years old. And my mom saying to close my eyes and think of something that made me happy. And I thought of Bret winning the WWF championship. That's, I remember Shut thinking of that. Up. Yeah. That's how much he meant to me. When Bad News Brown turned on him at WrestleMania four, that's what really made me fall in love with Bret Hart. Cause I felt like he was wrong. And then, you know, I followed him as a tag team champion and all that stuff. And amazingly, I don't know if you know, Paul Lazenby, do you know, Paul Lazenby? Mm -mm. Paul Lazenby is a great um, member of the mixed martial arts, Canadian community. Also a stunt man has done some pro wrestling. When the UFC was in Calgary for the first time, UFC 149 in 2012, Paul knew how much Brett meant to me and said, uh, he'd put me in touch with Brett and see if he'd do an interview. And so he put us in touch. Brett drove maybe 25 minutes to where I was staying at some Airbnb, drove to do the interview with me, didn't make me go to him, came to me, which is bizarre, right? Like no one does that. And then just sat in the apartment and like hung out with me and just talked for like 30 minutes. I was like, I can't, I can't believe you are as cool as I thought you were. It was, it was one of the highlights of my career. Yeah. I remember meeting Brett, um, when I was still living in Toronto and he would come through and do, he was like somehow got involved with some of my friends that were in comedy and he would come down to the comedy store in Toronto and he would like hang there and perform. And like, I remember like, like they, they did a show called, um, Sunday night live, obviously the exact same thing as SNL, um, not the same scale, but, uh, <laughs> but, that, but having Brett in there to like guest host it, I remember seeing him for the first time and then developing a relationship with him and like a rapport and then once I got to WWE, I mean, when you have somebody like Bret Hart, that you can say, hey, we know, I know this person, we're friends, like definitely makes bridging that gap a little bit easier. He's just the best dude. Love them hearts. What a legend. Uh, I feel for him. He has had a very hard life. Um, and I'm trying to teach my kids about, you know, Owen and the, the stroke. And I'm just, uh, you know, one of the, as I'm sure everyone has their own stories, one of the great things about, if I could say great silver lining of this past year is just the bonding. You know, I was traveling so much prior to this for the past 10 years. I used to feel like 80% of success is just showing up, just be omnipresent at every event 
from, you know, Wednesday to Sunday, every interview, every opportunity, never say no to anything. And just being forced to have this time at home with them has just been incredible. So I think this might be a byproduct of it. It's an awesome byproduct of it. And I'm having so much fun. Oh, you'll definitely have to like bring them down to some shows, get them involved in a little AEW. I mean, our house is kind of split between both. I I sit on the fence, obviously. Uh, But yes, bring them down to some shows. We got to get them invested. I would love that. I got to take them. um, So, you know, when, um, when WrestleMania was in New Jersey a couple of years ago, the SmackDown after, so the Tuesday after, someone at ESPN knew someone at Barclays who knew I was a fan and they got us tickets, which I was freaking like freak. I couldn't believe it right in back of the announce table. So I was sitting back of your friend, Corey Graves, who actually like, uh, you know, worked a little angle with me on Twitter saying that he was going to get me kicked out. Like Dana kicked me out of the arena. I think <laughs> he was such joking. a bastard. <laughs> Son of a bitch. They didn't know what was going on. They were too young, but now I try to tell them like we were sitting in back of the announcers. You guys didn't appreciate it. All you wanted was the popcorn. So I look forward to doing it now that they can appreciate it. Well, at least now, you know, that you'll be able to go back through the archives and you will be seen on camera. I mean, they can have that moment of like, I got to go to this with my dad. You can see me here and like put it up on Instagram or whatever. Um, that's very cool. I I love having those, like wrestling is just that bonding thing for so many people. And it it always kind of comes back to that. As we say, everything is wrestling. And that's a a prime example of this downtime and being able to reconnect before we move on from wrestling. Um, you said that your, your kids are big fans of Roman Reigns. Have you heard his new entrance music? Oh, it's a massive topic of conversation here. <laughs> what do you think? Where do you stand? <laughs> I love that you asked me that. They, uh, <laughs> they're going to think this is so funny because they they keep asking me to replay it. And at first they're like, we hate this. We hate this. We hate this. And now I can see them starting to get into it, as is usually the case. You hear a song once, you're like, eh. And now they're like, can you play it in the car? Can you play? I just want to hear the part with the piano. I just want to decide. So like we're d- dissecting the whole thing. I'm cool with it. I think it's... Uh, I mean, the guy is great. Actually, I have to say, I've never in my life asked anyone for a selfie, for a picture, any interview guest. I've always felt it's very important to be professional and all that. I got a chance to interview Roman Reigns right before WrestleMania on Zoom like this. And I said, hey, man, I've never asked anyone to do this, but my kids love you. Like my son would freak out, especially my middle son, Walter. Is it possible you could just give him a little shout out? And he couldn't have been nicer. And my producer clipped it off and I showed it to them. And I like, you know, I get the chance to talk to some pretty cool people, Connor and all this. They were state, they were telling all their friends, Roman Reigns knows my name, Roman Reigns. So it was very nice as a dad to be able to do that for them. And yes, I like the music. Time for a little uh freshen up. I don't know. Does John like it? Cause I feel like that's closing the book on that chapter, right? Yeah, it it very much so is closing the book on that chapter. And we were like, listen to because we weren't watching live, but then we were like, oh, it's I've like found the clip online and we were listening to it. And yeah, it's very I mean, it's obviously grandiose is all hell. Uh, it, it, I think it matches. I like that after it's like the big entrance and it gets into the music, there's still that dun dun. It still sort of has a little bit of a shield homage yeah. So that I really like, but I feel like Roman Reigns can do no wrong right now. So it's very kudos bold to, to switch the music when you're this hot, right? It doesn't happen often. I think he had to make the switch. I think it was time. It's been like long overdue. And I feel like I heard him talking about wanting to change his music quite a while ago. So I feel like it's been some time coming. So it, there, there's always more rhyme and reason. There's times that like there's times you look at like Vince, they're not looking at Vince's brain, but just like talking to him and seeing the way he thinks and sort of analyzes things. When he strikes gold, he strikes gold. And it seems like there must've been some kind of madness behind waiting for a specific time to change Roman's music. So it's interesting. You still watch, huh? Yeah, of course. You're still a fan. It didn't like sour you, the experience? No, I love watching my friends do their thing. None of, none of, uh, none of any of any sourness that I would have would definitely not be towards anybody that's on camera. So I love being able oh, to watch them all do their okay. thing. Okay. All right. But even <laughs> This <laughs> is what you do. Yeah. You're Ariel me. <laughs> but, so, but even like the business, because sometimes you could be like, ah, I was there. What were you there? Eight, nine years? Eight years. Yeah. I did need a breather. I certainly like, I'm not watching like, I mean, it's not like I sit there and like, we'll watch all of Raw or watch all of SmackDown. Like, but I, I always check. I get like the news app on my phone and like, see what's going down. I check all the stuff on Twitter. So yeah, I mean, I like staying in the know it's one of those things that like you are i've already spent so much time and i've been so invested in it for so long the idea of just being like well i don't do that anymore 
seems dumb to me, you know, and it's, it's a thing that I do love. I love wrestling. So to be able to watch raw, watch SmackDown, watch some NXT, watching AEW. Um, I was just in LA with, uh, with my husband while he was doing some stuff for new Japan. So it's like, we're all over the place. There's, there's no shortage of wrestling happening in this household. So it doesn't sound to me like you have animosity in your heart towards the company or the sport, because I feel like it's such a big part of your life. It would be a shit. You know, sometimes you move on. It's not the best breakup. You look back and you have regrets and things like that. But, and, and that's not a good way to live life in my opinion. So this is something I've learned very recently about myself, about like letting things go and, and not having animosity towards periods in my life. So I was just curious. Yeah. And you know, it is, I mean, there's definitely like, I needed that little bit of a breather of like, okay, I'm not, so entrenched in it all the time. And I'm not talking about it all the time. I mean, obviously still when I'm doing this show and having interviews and whatnot, like I'm still very much wrapped up in the WWE world, but walking around being like mad about things or wishing things went a different way. Like it's just not how it went. So for me to spend energy negative energy, feeling a certain way about something is useless. It's burdening nobody but myself. So just might as well drop it and move on. And also like I got so much greatness out of my time in WWE from the opportunities that I was afforded, the platform that I was afforded, um, the success that I've been able to have there. So, I mean, that's something that I would never be able to like turn my nose up at and be like, well, I didn't get to do this. Like I still, you know, I still had a great run there and kind of hit that ceiling, which ultimately led to me wanting to leave. I don't want to hijack the interview, but I have like 10 follow-up questions that I will keep to myself. And one day I can return the favor, but I'm way more fascinated in your story than hearing me talk about my story, but I know that's not. But on the other side of things, I mean, for yourself, I mean, that must've been difficult. I mean, I'm assuming what's your relationship with Dana like right now? <laughs> Look at Renee getting right into it. I love it. Um, <laughs> my sleeves are rolled yes, up. Let's go. Uh, my relationship with Dana is I would say non-existent. There is no relationship. Um, it was once supremely close and good and healthy and the kind of relationship that any journalist would want to have with arguably the most powerful person in the sport. Now I don't interact with them. We don't text, we don't talk on the phone. Um, and what I have often said to people is that doesn't necessarily bother me. Of course, I've tried to have a good relationship with everyone. And that could be tough at times when you're doing this job because people are going to get mad. If you're truly telling it like it is, it's not always going to be positive, but I've really tried to be fair. And I hope that people would recognize that. And so, of course, I would love to have a great relationship still with him. But I will say, if he doesn't want to talk to me, if he doesn't want to do interviews, text, all that stuff, I can live with that. Uh, the one part that has always made me a little uncomfortable is like, you know, messing with my livelihood. That's a different story. So, you know, interviews, text, all that, all well and good. That's his prerogative. I respect it. You don't want to talk to anyone. You shouldn't talk to them. But when it goes a little too far is when it gets a little personal and a little uncomfortable. And that's always been my issue, but I've really tried my hardest when people are watching me or listening to me speak or reading what I write. I don't want them to ever think that I'm biased, good or bad. I don't want them to think that I have an ax to grind. I don't want to be that guy. And I've really tried. Sometimes it's been difficult, but I've really tried to stay on that, you know, middle ground so that no one thinks, oh, here's Ariel who was wronged by so-and-so and he's slinging mud because he's mad at them. That One should have nothing to do with the other, in my opinion. When that relationship started to disintegrate, was, did you were you thinking about it in those terms at that time? Or you were like, oh my God, I should repair this right away because who knows what this is going to do for my career moving forward? Like that's got to be a bit of a, a scary spot. I know, for, I mean, not in that it's the same sense, but like anytime I felt like maybe Vince and I were maybe on like rocky ground, I'm like, oh fuck, here we go again. Like trying to get back in those good graces again. Yeah, um, obviously a little different because you were working directly for him. And there's a lot of similarities, I think I've never met. Mr. McMahon, but from what I'm told, um, when he is not happy, he lets you know it. Uh, so I've been on the receiving end of some text messages and phone calls. Um, and then when things started to get a little bit uh, sideways, it became clear, you know, like you'll get blocked on social media. It's very clear that someone's unhappy with you in this case. And so I tried my best to repair whatever was left of the relationship. But the banning was the last time I spoke to him. Like that night when they kicked me out of the arena was the last time I spoke to him. Maybe once, twice max, but one that I vividly remember where I was sort of not asked, but nudged 
to maybe reach out via text to try to like get the lines of communication open. Um, this was a couple of years ago before the deal with ESPN first like kicked in and I was already there and it was like, all right, we're, you know, under the same umbrella again, let's try. I never got a reply. And so, you know, I can make a very strong case that the olive branch should be reached out to me. Uh, you know, I'm not worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He is, I have lost money as a result of, you know, some decisions that he has made in employment. And so I, I swallowed my uh, pride and, and said, you know what, I, I, for the good of the company, for the good of the relationship, I strongly believe that we only have one life to live. And so why go through that life having any kind of enemy, especially something like this, where I don't think anyone did it. Like I certainly did anything wrong. So like, what's the point of all of this? Well, also for him to put on the ban and then renege on the ban and trying to make it seem like it's somewhat of an amicable relationship, but not actually moving forward in that sense. I mean, it seems like kind of a bullshit move to like, like just get on with it. Especially like you said, both working under the same branch, being at ESPN and, and all that for him to be like sort of dabbling into your livelihood. It's been, you know, all over, I wouldn't say all over the news, but as I'm researching stuff for you, looking this all up of your contract coming up in June with ESPN. And that's kind of coming to a head. I mean, we're just weeks away from that. How are you feeling? I feel pretty good. Uh, it's so a, Ariel got paid. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Um, but uh, I, re- I respect you for asking because that's something that I would ask. You know, someone asked me, how do you feel about your business being out there? And by the way, just for the record, I've not talked about this in any way, shape or form, but I'm not one to, you know, uh, shy away. So someone asked me, like, how do you feel about your business being out there? And I said, look, I've asked people about their business. And so it would be rather hypocritical of me to be upset about something like this. It is a little surreal. I was a huge, I still am a huge New York Knicks fan. And uh, when I was growing up in uh, Montreal, uh, no one cared about basketball. This is pre-Raptors. And there was a bodega near my house. And I would walk there just to buy the New York Post so that I could read about the Knicks because the Montreal Gazette certainly wasn't covering them. TSN wasn't covering them. Sportsnet wasn't even a thing in Canada. And so to think that the New York Post even cares about my life is kind of surreal, to be honest. So as of right now, we're doing this interview. I don't want to date us. I don't know when this is running, but I I don't have any sort of uh, idea what's going to happen as of next month. So still a little bit up in the air. That's so stressful. During, I mean, you know, the world is opening back up and there are more things going on, but you know, I mean, even, you know, with my decision to leave WWE and not being like, Oh, what my hands not on another branch, not knowing what that next thing was going to be. Do you have a bit of a feeling of that? If things don't get sorted out? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I obviously knew this was coming, so I want to know, I want to be prepared, good or bad. It has been a great time. I mean, it was my dream to go work for ESPN. And uh, I feel like in the midst of the pandemic, I was able to pivot quite well. I haven't been to an event in a year. I never missed an event for 10 years. You know, Um, I never went like more than one, like my kid was born, I'd miss one. And then I'd be back at the next pay-per-view or whatever. And so I haven't been to one in over a year, not my doing. Some people think that it's, you know, UFC banning me, or I'm afraid of coronavirus. This has been ESPN's call. I mean, that's why I'm doing my shows from home, blah, blah, blah. Hopefully that changes very soon. And so I've been able to pivot. I used to do a show that was very interview heavy on Mondays. Then I started doing this show with DC, Daniel Cormier, and it became even more popular. And so I'm very proud of what I've been able to do. Also, one of my dreams was to work NBA games and I got that opportunity as well. So it's been great. I have no uh, ill feelings towards ESPN. And uh, I know that they're sometimes put in a tough spot because I know that some people probably don't want me to be working at ESPN uh, because of the relationship. And they have had my back internally uh, behind the scenes since I signed back in uh, April of 2018. So I'm curious, I won't lie. Like I said, I'm a neurotic, anxious person. And so there's a part of me that would love to know what's going to happen, but uh, I'm trying to appreciate the moment and trying to tell myself that, you know, when I'm 70, no one's going to want to work with me or hire me or do anything with me business-wise. So, you know, why not just enjoy this and not get too stressed out about it? Yeah. I mean, honestly, when sometimes when things are out of your hands, it's like you can do as much work and put so much effort forth, but you can't force anyone's hand to do anything. And it's very interesting to see kind of what comes up when things get down to the wire or even past that to see what happens. And I'm just going to throw this idea out there. I mean, maybe you do some stuff for AEW and then you can also 
Get on those uh, NBA. Wow. TNT. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You get on that TNT. You go hang out with Bar- Barkley and Shaq. It would be fun. Uh, we also have, of course, one championship on TNT. So that's an MMA organization that's over there. Um, back in, what was this? 2006 or so. I actually had a brief conversation with Double J, Jeff Jarrett, to work for TNA in the early days of TNA uh, through Kurt Angle, who I befriended at the time. And so uh, the wrestling world has always been, you know, a big part of my life and an influence and all that stuff. I've never worked for WWE, as you know, but uh, I'm open to anything. If, if someone, I think it might be tough for me to do like scripted stuff because I'm so used to like being a journalist and asking. Well, they would probably give you a little more leeway than like most people were afforded. Okay. Well, if you know, Mr. Khan put in a good word, uh, Tony, that is not Nick, the new president of uh, WWE. It's weird that there's two cons in the business all of a sudden, but yeah. The next time you're watching basketball, I've got the perfect way for you to get in on the action for free. I'm talking about NBA in play. It's absolutely free to play on the FanDuel app and features all the fun of live betting. NBA in play turns every quarter of every game into a free contest where you can win real cash prizes. So while you're watching the game, all you have to do is predict the outcome of plays and game props before they happen to claim your share of the prize pool. Best of all, a new contest starts every quarter of every game, giving you even more ways to win. FanDuel is the exclusive home for NBA in-play, so the action's always available right at your fingertips on the FanDuel app. The app is so easy to use, and it takes less than two minutes to sign up. And it doesn't matter where you live or where you're traveling to because NBA in-play is available in every state. Don't miss your shot. Get in the game and download the FanDuel app to start playing NBA in-play today. Um, But I remember the first time that I met you in Toronto at The Score, which was, oh my God, however many moons ago. But looking at all the people that came out of The Score, I mean, you came in there working on the MMA hour with Mauro Ranallo, correct? Yes, how how long had you been in the business before that? Maybe like four or five years something like that? By the way, shout out to the score. I mean, like the factory that they uh, had over there of talent is unbelievable. Not just in the wrestling world, but in the wrestling world now with Adnan Verk as well. Um, but just, you know, sports, TV people in general. Um, so I got into the quote unquote business technically in 2007, but it was an interesting start because I went to Syracuse University to um, be a sports broadcaster. I always wanted to be a sports broadcaster, but where I grew up, um, you know, no, like I grew up in Montreal, no one went away for school um, in, in, in my community in Montreal. So I go to Syracuse and I get terribly homesick. This is 2001. Very, very homesick. I miss my parents. I miss my friends. I just miss Montreal. And I also realized for the first time in my life that I was surrounded by people who had the same dreams and hopes and goals and aspirations that I did, which was to be the next great sports broadcaster. A lot of people go to Syracuse with that same dream. And I always like to be a little different. So in 2001, I said to my parents, you know what? There's the sport called MMA. There's this league called the UFC, which by the way, at the time wasn't even eight years old yet. It's going to be mainstream. I feel it. I feel like it's going to be mainstream. And I feel like in 10 years, there's going to be some executive in some office who knows nothing about this sport. And he's going to say, who's the guy? Who's the Howard Cosell of MMA? And I said, I want to be that guy. So I basically immersed myself into this radio show that I had on one of the crappy student stations where every Saturday morning I would interview pro wrestlers and MMA fighters. It was called the main event. And uh, I would have legends on the show. I would write to people um, via their website at the time, their official website. So I had Bobby the Brain on, I had Paul Bear on, Dan Severn on, Bruce Buffer was on, um, Tommy Dreamer came on. So it was just like a mix of wrestlers and fighters. And that was just kind of like, you know, my escape because I was miserable at Syracuse, but I really looked forward to doing to the show. Then I graduated in 04 I went down the path of TV production for a few years. I worked on a couple of different shows, networks, and then I actually got a job at Spike TV in 2007. So at the time, Spike TV was the home. Shout out to Spike TV. Yes, respect. Former home of the UFC and Monday Night Raw and the Joe Schmo Show, if you remember that great The Man program. Show too, yes, right? Yes, No, the Man yeah. Show was... <laughs> Comedy Central. Ah, damn. The Joe Schmo show was a great reality show where one guy was like, thought he was on a reality, but everyone else was uh, actors. Anyway, I lasted one week there at Spike because I didn't like the job. And I realized that the job actually had nothing to do with producing content. It was the UFC who was producing all the content. And so I don't want to be a coordinator and just like getting tapes. So I went to my boss's office after a week and I said, this isn't the job for me. 
I need to go and do my own thing. He was very mad. He said, you just started. This is unprofessional. You're going to regret this for the rest of your life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just knew in my, I'm a, I'm a heart guy. I knew in my heart, this wasn't the right call. And from my cubicle, they made me stick around for a month and a half until they found someone to replace me from my cubicle at spike. I started my own website and I said, all right, I'm going to give myself six months to get noticed. My goal is to prove that I could be the best interviewer in MMA. Six months is a very short window. Yes. No pay, no nothing, but I wanted to stick to a timeline. So I said, October of 2007 to April 1st, 2008. And every morning I'm going to post an interview with a fighter, an audio interview. And uh, I had this little WordPress site and uh, every morning at 8am, I reached out to fighters via MySpace. That was the social media site du jour. And uh, I would post an interview every morning, Monday through Friday, starting to gain steam, steam, steam. But come March, like no one was really hiring people to cover MMA in March of 2008. Luckily, with three days left on my deadline, a company that was starting their their first MMA site found my stuff, reached out to me, said, hey, we'd like to hire you to run our site. It was called MMARated.com. And they said, how much would you like to get paid? First of all, I started crying when I got the call because I was like, I can't believe I was going to stay true to that, that deadline. April 1st, I was out. So I took the number that I was making from Spike and I doubled it just to see if I could prove that guy wrong. And they said yes. And that's how the career kind of started. That's so crazy. I mean, even from you talking about when you were like a kid and would go on like the wrestling websites and you knew that that was like such a source that people were into and for you to start doing something like that in the MMA world. And now what, like for the past 10 years, you've been regarded as like the number one MMA journalist, like just knocking down these doors. It's cool. I found that there was an opening in the coverage. I found that no one was really covering it the way I as a fan wanted it to be covered. I would do little things when I started to now do this for a living. I would show up to events wearing, you know, a suit, having a mic flag and a microphone, having a cameraman as opposed to holding a camera and asking people questions. Like I just wanted to up the professionalism a little bit and people uh, really took to that. And I think that because I was a little bit raw in terms of my broadcasting abilities, like I wasn't Mr. Broadcaster showing up with a fake voice. I was who I was and people kind of saw me as like, this kid who can ask questions and isn't really afraid of asking questions and isn't backing down, but also is a little bit raw. He's one of us. The fans were really, you know, were really behind me. And, and honestly, like if we're doing this interview in 2021 and I was banned in 2016 and the fans weren't on my side, I would still be the band guy. Like the, the only reason I was unbanned was because of the fans. And that's why I've always felt till this day. Yeah. My, my check says Disney, but ultimately I worked for them because they saved my career. If not for them, I'm probably doing something else. Man, what, it's just such a crazy story. But I mean, ultimately, it's just about somebody sticking to their guns and following through on all the shit that you said that you were going to do. And one step after another and all these building blocks kind of adding up, it's, it's really impressive to, to hear that story and just imagine the stresses of going through all that stuff. Um, so going to school for broadcasting, do you recommend it? That's a great question. So I feel like I get asked that all the time and I didn't go to school at all. But I mean, looking at what you've been able to build for yourself, I'm just like curious what your take is on it, having like seen both sides. So there are a lot of things that I learned in journalism school that have stuck with me till this day. There's a class called journalism ethics that I still, for some reason, it just stayed with me. I do not think for a second that in order to be a successful broadcaster, you have to go to broadcasting school or journalism school. If you have the opportunity, it's a great thing to have in your back pocket. It gives you a little bit of credibility, perhaps off the bat. People like to hear that you went there, but I don't think it's a requirement. Um, you do, you know, if you're looking at candidates and you're like, oh, this guy went, you know, younger kids and you're like, okay, this kid knew what he wanted and he probably has a foundation. Yeah, all well and good. But for the most part, I don't think you have to go at all. I just was lucky enough. And I think a lot of broadcasters learn later in life that they're really good at this, that they want to do this. And also in this day and age with podcasts, with everything, you don't, you, there's no traditional route anymore. So what I, I would say to someone, yeah, if you know, at a young age, if you're in ninth grade, like I was, and you're reading sports illustrated and it says Syracuse university is a great school for broadcasting. And you say, you want to go there too. I say more power to you. But if you're a 26 year old kid and you really want to do this and you didn't go, and now you think that you're behind the eight ball, you're not. I mean, it's really all about your style, your ability to ask questions, to write, to be professional, to be to outwork everyone. Those are the things that are ultimately going to get you by. 
The thing that gets in my head when I think about journalism and broadcasting school is what you kind of said earlier of like being more polished and not having that rawness. And to me, that's almost a disadvantage because I feel like you said that's what something that made you stick out. I think like that's something that made me stick out as well, that I were like people putting on that fake voice or feeling very broadcastery all of a sudden, like, and that is a really hard thing to break somebody of. When they're in that habit of talking a certain way and presenting a certain way, I feel like that can be somewhat detrimental. Yes. And we're, we're moving in the complete opposite direction. For example, look at someone like Pat McAfee. These are the people who are successful now. Dan Lebatar. These are the people who are successful and they couldn't be more not traditional, right? Non-traditional. And so one thing that I was always very cognizant of, and again, I, I kind of always like to do my own thing. So every kid that I met at Syracuse, they wanted to be the next Bob Costas or Marv Albert. And they all were like dressed like they go to get you a turtleneck. Uh, I don't, I, and I, <laughs> I did not want that at all to the point where for my three years at Syracuse, I didn't cut my hair. So I have very thick hair. And so I grew out my hair into an Afro, like a massive Afro. And my professors kept telling me, you're never going to get a job. So they, for some reason in my program, broadcast journalism at Syracuse, they really wanted to push you into working uh, local TV news. They're like, okay, you got to start Mark in 96 and then move to 67 and then 45. And I don't want to do that. Like, I have no interest in that. And they're like, you're never going to get a job in West Virginia with hair like that. You're never going to. And I was like, great. The more you tell me that, the more I want to keep this thing growing. And so that was my way of rebelling against. I always knew that I was going to be, you know, going down a different path within this world of TV slash journalism slash media. Um, and I had no interest whatsoever in being, and, and even now people have asked me, you know, even in this process now, like, are you interested in play by play? Are you interested in this? I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm more the long form interviewing all that. I'm, I'm just, I'm not Amen, the guy. Amen, brother. I'm, I'm sure you. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that loud and clear. I echo those sentiments very strongly. How <laughs> it's tough a totally was that? different medium. It was very tough. Um, you know, obviously it's one of those opportunities that lands in front of you. And I'm all about saying yes to things and trying to figure it out and learning on the job, but learning on Monday night raw as the first woman to step in there and do commentary is like, it was, it was a tough gig. And as much as, you know, kind of what you just said, it's like that long form content. I am not, I'm not a sound biter. I don't just jump in. Like I want to have a conversation and chat and like bullshit. So to, to jump in and try to like, like say something in the heat or say something in somebody's comeback or just as happens in the entrance. It's like, you're not just calling what you see on camera. And it's these, the timing of things working in a three man booth is also an entirely different beast. Um, and I feel like I was also thrown in there and not that no one helped me. People helped me, but it was, I was still kind of like just swimming in the deep end. Like, can somebody throw me another life raft, please? Like try to help me a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was one of those things. It was a tough year. I'm glad I had the year to do it. I'm glad I had a year to like really kind of stick it out. Cause I knew it wasn't going to be this instant duck to water situation. It takes years and years and talking to Michael Cole about that, where it's like, he's been doing it for what, like 20, 30 years he has all that experience under his belt. So for me to try to like get in there and get my elbows up and try to get into this dynamic between him and Corey Graves was like, oh my God, it was tough. It was only a year. It felt like longer from the outside. It was maybe, it was maybe a little longer than a year, maybe like a year, maybe a year and a half. Well, unsolicited, this format for you to me is infinitely better. This, you know, you're able to be yourself and, and, and you're very, very good at your job. I've, I've told you that. You're a great interviewer as well. You're, you know, you're very um, comfortable and relaxed and conversational and that job, it, you know, it's not that, and, and it's a great skill, but it's not that. And I don't think it's, I always think of something that I heard Paul Heyman say about like accentuating someone's skills. And I don't feel like that is accentuate. Now, if they wanted to do the Renee Paquette show or the, the Renee Young show, where it's like you doing these, like the, the broken skull, I'm like, oh, that's you. But I think you did a great job given the circumstances historic. You should be very proud of it, but I think you're in a much better place now. 100%. And you know, I kind of kept coming back to like the things that I am good at and what people enjoy for me on camera is not me getting into like the nitty gritty of a match and putting over like the brutality of something. It's people want to have fun with me and it's really hard to have fun in that show within those three hours when you've got to really put over the seriousness and the stakes of everything. And yeah, it was, uh, 
It was tough. I'm glad I got to do it. Like, I'm glad that I got that experience under my belt. But as soon as I was done, I was like, oh my God, I feel like I can breathe again. As soon as that was like over, I was like, thank God. Get me out. Throw was that, that your white call towel. or was that, was that their call? I think we were all on the same page about that. Um, you know, when I started out and you get into the whole, like, you know, somebody being in your ear and working with Vince and having somebody sort of have an idea of who you are. And I think Vince very much had the idea in his head of me being that very broadcastery person, which I'm not. So me trying to play that role, trying to appease him, but also trying to do my own thing. It was just kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, but then once the relationship with Fox opened up and then we started doing backstage, I was like, I'm going to slide over there, going to go back to doing a studio show. And everyone's just like happy with that situation. But I feel for anybody, I mean, you talk about Adnan Verk jumping in there and everyone wants to talk about Adnan and giving him a hard time. It's like, it is a really difficult situation. It's an uphill battle and it's such a hot seat. That whole commentary thing of this like rotating seat of who's going to stick, what's going to work. It just, it sucks. I feel bad for anyone that steps in there for that. In many respects, it's not even like being named the play-by-play guy for the Yankees, because for the most part, people in New York are watching you here. It's something seen by people worldwide. And it's not like they threw him in there. I love Adnan. And I think he's going to be like a huge, huge star in this world if he wants to be. And I think it was a great idea to get him. He's got so much energy and charisma. It's awesome. And fellow Canadians. So I'm rooting for him. He's amazing. It's not like they threw him in like the, the dog days of July when, you know, things the Monday after WrestleMania, Poor guy. Jeez Louise. Not like there's a big microscope on that night. Arguably the biggest night of the year in professional wrestling outside of WrestleMania. I mean, honestly, I sometimes like that Monday more than WrestleMania. So it's like, man, talk about that spotlight. And then having Pat come in on SmackDown, who's so comfortable. He's been around, like we were just saying, like that different style of broadcaster also doing color commentary, but like you can't compare the two at all. No. And well, they're also doing different jobs as you, as you noted, but no, I, I look, it seems to me like they are going in the direction of trying to get people with credible backgrounds in the sense, Adnan Verk, Pat has this football world. He's great. I even saw that they're adding uh, Arash Markazi to NXT. Yeah. In interviews like it seems like they're trying to get like the sports guy to come over and and not like up the credit. Got that CAA pull up in there. Weird. A weird <laughs> connection between all three. I wonder why. Funny how that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, I I, I think it's uh it's part of the the evolution. But yes, I I wish them all the best, and I think that they'll all do great. Absolutely. Okay. In your, uh, in your opinion, what makes a great interview? What has been your success to give you for the past 10 years, the best journalist in MMA? So a few things, uh, I'm a big believer in not writing things down. Obviously you have to be well-versed in the the subject. Obviously you have to know their backstory and, and what you're there to talk about all these things, but nothing uh, drives me more crazy. Like when I'll see someone sitting down with LeBron James, for instance, for a 10 minute interview, right. And they've got a sheet of questions. I'm like, you can't ask LeBron James questions for 10 minutes off the top of your head. You're an NBA reporter. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Because I just think like, let's say you and I right now, we're going to get coffee. You're not showing up with a sheet of questions. I'm not showing up. We're just, you're talking about your life. I'm talking. You're asking a follow-up. That's the best quote unquote interview. It's more of a conversation. And so I, I remember in my Syracuse days talking to Bobby, the brain and having one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then I remembered I'm not listening to what they're saying. I'm waiting for them to stop talking so I can ask question three. And that's not a good interview. So I would tell anyone know what you're talking about, know who you're talking to, do your research. Uh, I'm not a fan of, oh, I don't do research. I'm just going to go in there and, and and wing it. No, do your research. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, I love, I love Bob McCown. I'm sure you know Bob McCown too. And I've heard him often say, I don't do any research. I don't read anything. I don't do anything. And I'm like, wow, good for you for getting through a whole career like that. I just <laughs> feel like you're missing out on some nuggets here or there that you could have picked up on someone's these days, social media, you see something on a story, like, you know, like there's little places that you can check for stuff. I wouldn't write questions. I would be very, um, very careful about listening, listen to everything, even the last word of a five minute answer, because that could be what you want to ask about in the following question. So just be locked in, listen, be professional. All those things have really, um, 
you know, they've, they've really uh, taken me far. And the other thing is, is like, don't be afraid, right? What's the worst that can happen? If you ask questions in a respectful manner, if you ask questions in a professional manner, you know, you have the opportunity. This is something I've always said to myself, like there's a million people that want to be standing in front of John Jones right now with a microphone. And uh, if you chicken out and don't ask him something that everyone else wants the answer to, then you're not, you know, you're, you're not taking full advantage of this situation. So if you ask it in a professional, polite way, if they don't want to answer, they don't want to answer, but at least you asked it. And so I've, I've tried, and there've been some tense moments and some moments where I'm like, gosh, do I really, yeah. What's like the worst moment for you during that? You're like, Oh shit, uh, here we go. <laughs> there have been a few, I mean, the first one that came to mind right now is Nick Diaz in 2001. Um, do you know, Nick Diaz? Mm-hmm. He's the brother of Nathan. Um, John's favorites. Oh, is that true? Yeah. The Diaz brothers. He was like, can Everyone I jump on them. and talk to Ariel? I'm like, yeah, sure. So maybe he will. We'll see. I would love to talk to him. <laughs> I think he's in uh, the I didn't gym know right he now. knew who I was. Oh yeah, of course. Oh man. I'm a big fan. Um, that's, that's great to hear. Thank you. Um, by the way, Biggie, I didn't know was a big fan. I got to talk to him recently and he's like, I just listened to your interview with Stones. I'm like, you know who I am? This is insane. Well, he's a huge MMA fan to begin with, but yeah, dude, people know who you are. Who knew? Um, <laughs> so Nick didn't want to talk to me at all. And it was a whole thing. And they're like, Nick, can you talk to him? Can you talk to him? There's a big show. So the first minute of the interview, he just like looks at the camera. He goes, I didn't want to do this interview, but they made me. And I'm like, Nick, what's the problem? Like, why don't you like me? And he goes, well, you know, where I come from, people like you get slapped. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and then there was, at one point in the interview, like it's, it felt like he was like going to an eight, nine, 10. And I thought in the back of my mind, like, is he going to do something? Is he actually going to slap me? But he never did. Thank God. Yeah. So I've never, I've never gotten the, uh, the John Stossel treatment. <laughs> I was just going to ask that. <laughs> that has never happened. People have gotten handsy though. Like Rampage has literally put his hands around my neck and has squeezed a little bit tight, all in good fun. But I was like, Rampage, it was a little tight just for the record. Like you didn't have to do the extra squeeze there. Lighten up on the touch there, brother. Yeah. So there have been moments like that. And there have been moments where, you know, you're sitting in front of Connor and you have to ask him about sexual assault allegations. And there's like 50 people of his team there. And I'm literally by myself. There's not a single person from ESPN there. I'm like, what happens if they don't like this question right now? What is? But, you know, thankfully nothing has happened. And I don't know if I've ever walked away from an interview content. I always feel you suck. You, you missed this. You should have asked that. I can't believe you didn't follow up with this. Like I'm very hard on myself, but try my best. Yeah. Cause I mean, as much as you can like be prepared for things and you'll be like, Oh shit, I missed this one thing. I should have gone in and asked this. Yeah. That's, that's such an annoying feeling to kind of sit back and reflect on it that way, but horrible. it is what it is. Um, what about the importance of the relationships that you maintain with the fighters? I mean, obviously DC being a huge one for you guys have your podcast together and a great relationship. Um, how much has that been able to, to help you guys move or you specifically moving forward? Probably the the number one most important thing, because I believe very strongly in trust. So I have a lot of conversations with fighters where they tell me things that are quote unquote off the record, right? And they say, put it in the vault. DC always goes vault, vault, vault. And there have been a lot of times where it's been massive news, but I want them to believe if you tell me something and it's off the record or it's, it's uh, something you don't want out at the moment, maybe in the future, that it will stay there. I will never hint to it. It's going in my head and it's never coming out until you tell me. Also, when I talk to managers or coaches, for me, it's always off the record unless noted otherwise. So there are some people that, you know, people have complained to me about where it's like, hey, uh, so-and-so, are you fighting on this date against this? And they, you know, maybe mistake on their part, they'll answer yes. And they're like, Oh, I didn't know we were on the record. And I've said to people, like, you always have to assume it's on the record unless noted. Like us with the bookshelf that was on the record, unfortunately. Yeah. And then you put me on blast. (laughs) Um, so I, I just feel very strongly about, uh, having that, that trust and that they should be able to trust me. And that's why I don't like to edit my interviews or anything like that. Like when you talk to me, you are, you know, making a pact with me and I'm going to treat you with respect and I'm not going to blindside you. I'm not going to go for the gotcha, you know, quote or anything like that. And when we have conversations, it's very important to keep it in the vault if you want it in the vault. Also, another thing that's been very important to me is don't just hit people up when you need something. There's a lot of times where I'm talking to people and it's a full-time job in its own right, just to stay in touch with all these people, but where I feel like I just need to reach out to be a normal human being and not with the intention of it paying off, but with the intention of just being a normal human being. And then hopefully it does pay off, but that's not why I'm doing it. It's very sincere. I will be honest. I'm, I'm a very strong believer in journalism and unbiased and being ethical. These are very important things, maybe too much at times. 
but I'll also say that I'm a human, I have feelings and you make connections with people as opposed to other people. And so like someone like DC, I connected with long before he retired. Someone like Chris Weidman, I connected with long before he retired. And when oh I saw him God, break his life, yeah, it's very hard. So I'm texting with his wife at you know, the hospital and she's telling me things that I'm not going to report because we have become somewhat friendly. I try to always keep it down the middle, but you're a human and you connect with people, right? So these things have helped me. And uh, luckily now I don't have to beg for interviews anymore. People will come to me and that's a great feeling. And they just be like, you know, I trust that you're going to do this the right way. And you know, what, what a great compliment that is. It's funny. Cause I feel like I do a similar thing with my show of like calling in friends, be like, Hey, come on the show, come hang out. But then I'm like, wait, was that supposed to be a vault thing? Cause there's so much information that, you know, just being friends that you've got to like weed through of like, Hey, what can I actually use here? What is that's tough. It is well, especially since you were like on the inside with a lot of these people. And now you're kind of on the yeah. opposite side. I mean, for example, in this interview, you put my contract situation on blast. <laughs> I thought that that was an inside thing. And now, you know, the world knows I'm about to be unemployed in a month and a half. You'll be good. You'll land on your feet. No one's you're, you're going to be just fine. 100%. But no, you're, I know exactly like with DC, DC would be a, an example that I think would relate to something like yours because like we became buddies, if you will. Like when I got banned that night, DC called me and I'm in the, the hotel room and he's like, I always get emotional talking about this because he's like, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. I'm like you're Daniel Cormier. Like you don't have to have my back, you know? And uh, so he, he was just always a good friend to me. Oh man, I'm sorry because I was about to have a kid, a third kid. And it was a very scary time. And, um, when he got knocked out, like I felt like I, I needed to have his back too. So yeah. Having those relationships is just so important. And for you guys to be able to having, you know, you guys have your show, you guys have that budding relationship so much more to come from that. DC seems like he's an outstanding human being. Um, and there's always rumblings of him maybe making the jump over to WWE. Maybe he'll end up on that commentary desk at some point. I mean, he knocks out of the park, obviously with UFC, but yeah, he seems like such a great dude and having those relationships are so incredible. So I'm glad that you've got that buddy in DC to, to have your back during some bullshit that's gone down. I appreciate you going long there. So you gave me a chance to uh, stop. That was, a, that was a veteran move on your part. Thank you, Renee. DC would kill it in that world. I got you. Unfortunately, he, uh, his back is messed up. Like, I think there would have been a time where he could have actually been a pro wrestler, but his back is too messed up. He's also in his early forties. It's not a great time to start as we've learned from a lot of MMA fighters. DDP did it. I know, but not after a career as a collegiate Olympic MMA fight, all that stuff. Um, but yes, shout out to DDP and, and his great yoga. But I do think that he would kill it on the broadcast side of things. But UFC treats him very, very well. Like they love that guy. So they've got such great chemistry over there too. It's really great. Well, Ariel, listen, it's been awesome to have you on the show. I really appreciate you joining me. You're leaving me with tears in my eyes, Renee. <laughs> For God's sakes, what a loser I am. I mean, no, how okay. else are you supposed to end things, right? <laughs> I know, Go out right? on that moment. But no, I'm really excited for you. I'm I'm looking forward to to what the future holds for you. Um, we'll all be kind of watching. I think there's tons of people rooting for you, as you said. I mean, from people inside the octagon, people in UFC to the fan base that you've already been able to accumulate over all of your years covering MMA. So looking forward to what you do. And I really appreciate you coming on total pro. Thank you. Uh, congrats to you. I'm a big fan of the podcast. As I said, I think you're a tremendous interviewer. Very happy that you're about to be a mom for the first time. There's nothing greater than that. Your life is about to change to, you know, a million times better. It's going to give you balance and perspective and happiness. Like you've never experienced before. And I don't even know what it's like to be a mom. I know what it's like to be a dad. I can't even imagine what that is like. So Congrats to you. Congrats to your husband. He's doing great things. And uh, I'm honored that you guys wanted me on. So yeah, appreciate it. Absolutely. And listen, whenever you want to bring your kids down to a show, whether it's WWE or AEW, I hope that I can help in any way. So let me know. Thank you. Thanks, dude. Oral Sessions is proud to be presented by FanDuel. You guys never played FanDuel Fantasy before? Great. FanDuel is offering up to a $500 bonus instantly when you make your first deposit with our 20% deposit match. Uh, why do I play FanDuel? I play FanDuel because I'm new to the fantasy game. I kind of need somebody to hold my hand through the whole process. And the thing with the FanDuel fantasy app is that it's so incredibly easy to use. Even a dumb dumb like me can make it work. And if you happen to be a fence sitter like yours truly, you guys can pick a new team every single game. You can switch it up. You can change your mind. It's all up to you. Ball is in your court. So FanDuel is offering new users a deposit match of up to 500 smackaroos 
when you make your first deposit. Just go to fanduel.com slash cowherd for more info. Fanduel.com slash cowherd. Fanduel, more ways to win. All right, a big thank you to Ariel for joining me. Um, he's welcome to come on here any damn time that he wants. Fake bookshelf and all. Um, and also, let's get on DC. Let's bring Daniel Cormier on the show. I want to pick that guy's brain. I want to hear his side of being pals with Ariel Hawani and their show and all the things that those two get to do together. Um, all right, guys, you know what to do. Check out uh, my Instagram and my Twitter, both at Renee Paquette for the volume. It is the volume sports on Twitter and Instagram. And we both have our YouTube pages. Just search Renee Paquette, search the volume on YouTube, like subscribe, share, turn on those notifications, all that good stuff. It is all happening. We've got all that content here for you. And also while you're at it, check out some of the other podcasts that are available on the volume. You want to get into some betting, talk some other sports. We've got it all here for you. Follow them all. Check it all out. I'll see you guys next time on Oral Sessions.